I want to kind of build on what we um, just talked about here. I, I just met Rebecca and John. <laughs> I promise y'all there is no connection at all. I just put some names out there and they just fit. So, so in case anybody's wondering, no, no, and no. <laughs> Does that, that help you? We good? <laughs> all right. <laughs> Say it again. I'm still in trouble. <laughs> well, guys, I, I want to build on this, but I, I, first of all, are you, are you seeing the big pictures? It's important. It's important to me you see the big picture. Okay. You see why I had the context before we got into the process. What you will find with most Christians as you start to try to talk about this if you just run into and just start teaching what you can and can't control and try to process that, well, if you don't wrap it around some other reality, it seems kind of cold and callous, you know, and depending on how you approach it, if you're just trying to help them to solve a problem, this doesn't solve a problem. It helps you understand the problem. Does that make sense? Part of my goal with people is we're going to help you resolve it, but in a bigger context, but we got to help you see it. Again, wisdom, you know, when talks about praying for wisdom, the inner workings. This is the good and bad. This is how things work. And based upon how things work, this is how you need to respond. Well, the other side of the coin with that assignment or what I do with people is I give them homework assignments based upon that called awareness homework. And what they end up having to do is to evaluate some scenarios or situations in their lives, and they have to put it in that grid. So if it's husband and wives, parents, it doesn't matter. I'll say, I want you to look at the five most difficult situations you've had in the last three or four weeks, and I want you to answer these questions with every scenario or every situation. So I would say, question number one, explain to me the situation. That'd be the first thing. Here's what's going on, who, what, when, where. Then I would say, identify for me the things you could not control in this situation, specifically the thoughts of the other person, the words or whatever. Tell me what you had no control over in that situation. Write that out. Then I would have them tell me this. Tell me what you could control. Identify the thoughts you had, the words you said, the emotions you felt. Write out for me what you could control. And then at the end of it, I would say, based upon what you just wrote out, what was driving your choices, selfish ambition or love? What would happen if you did that on a daily or weekly basis. If you just sat down at the end of the day, not in the morning, you haven't sinned good yet in the morning. <laughs> but when the day is done and you're sitting down, not when you're about to be sleepy, but right before, if you were to sit down and say, let me just, in my interactions with people today, let me choose some specific people. What could I not control? And get specific. What could I control? Based upon the choices I've made in these areas, what was motivating me in that situation, in that situation? What do you think the Spirit of God will begin to unfold to you? Now you're getting the wisdom you're looking for, and God has already given us direction. We're going to talk about a little bit later of what we need to do uh, later tomorrow, centrality of repentance. How do we repent? How do we move forward? Because, again, the answer is not, I need to stop doing this. That's not enough. 
Habits aren't broken, they're replaced. And you don't stop something, you start something else. And once you are ready to start something else, something else will stop. But I just need to quit thinking about pink elephants. I need to quit thinking about pink elephants. What are you going to be thinking about all day? I'm going to focus on green elephants. I'm going to focus on green elephants. What happened? You don't even see the pink elephants anymore. Reality is stopping something doesn't make you spiritual. It doesn't make you mature. Unbelievers can stop doing drugs. Unbelievers can stop things in the flesh. That doesn't make you better. You want to become like Christ, and only those who belong to Christ can do that. It's not what you stop, it's what you start. That is the most important thing about the whole process, but you can't get to any of that until you first frame the situation in wisdom to learn how to see it and then make the adjustments. As I do that assignment with different uh, couples and individuals, that's the first thing. If they don't begin to walk through that well, we keep doing it until they do. Because here's the thing. If you can't see your life through that grid, what are you going to keep doing every time something comes up? You're going to give me the yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And you're going to begin to explain to me why these things made you do what you did. You're going to, again, the Michael Jackson, the way you make me feel. Okay? Okay? I feel the way I feel because I want what I want because I'm thinking what I'm thinking. I can blame you, but that's just an excuse which keeps me in bondage. And I think you're the problem and I'm mad at God. But God has given us the wisdom to see and to make the adjustments if we accept it. So with that in mind, I want to build on this more with the point of choice. And as we look at the point of choice, I talked about two choices we make, and we're going to build on that. You either uh, selfish ambition or love. But I, I want to mention a third thing, but this third thing is so how can I put it? It's, it's arbitrary. You don't stay there, but I want to talk about it. But before we go to the, to the slides, I want us to, to look at this. Let me paint another picture for you. Um, in all the situations in life, and let me give you those six Ps again, because I want you to think about this. Because as a professor, as a shepherd, um, I hear these six Ps all the time. And I call them the six Ps of excuses, okay? And it makes sense why we use this, because the culture... And many of the psychological principles have taught this as a reality that, again, is antithetical to Scripture. Let me give you the six Ps. Number one, people. Number two, past. Number three, parents. What's the first one? Second one. What's the third one? Okay, number four, pressures. Number five, pain. Number six, problems. Can you tell me what the six P's are? What's number one? Number two? Number three? Number four? Number five? Number six. These are the excuses that we give for the decisions we make to sin or not to sin in life. Or why we're doing and not doing something. Example. Let's start down the list. You don't understand the 
they have been so difficult, that's why I choose and I can't do such and such. You don't understand. The, you don't know what I've gone through and how hard my life has been. That's why I can't or can't do such and such. You don't understand my, oh, they didn't do this and they should have did that and they do that. That's why I can't or don't do this. You don't understand. The, there's so much. You don't know my world and because of it, that's why I will or would not do blame. You don't understand my, it is so horrific. That's why I can't do what God says or won't do what God says. You don't understand the, it's too much. How many times have you heard those excuses for disobedience? How many times have you used those excuses? Ah, that's the real reality. Those six things do not determine your choices. Let me put it to you this way. They are the context by which you make choices. In the context of dealing with people, in the context of dealing with the past, your parents, the pressures, the pains, the problems, in the context of those things, you make a choice, and the choices you make are based upon the condition of your heart. True or false? If that's always true, then when do you ever get it to excuse yourself for the choices you made? Wow. See, this is life reality. Now, let me give you these three things, and then we'll build on it. Um, with those six Ps in life, you're always responding to those six Ps. And I talked about the two things, but I want to add a third thing, but I want to clarify it. I want to talk about neutral responses, okay? And I want to define a neutral response. So basically in life, you have three responses to everything. You have neutral responses, selfish ambition responses, or loving responses. Neutral responses, selfish ambition responses, or loving. You can call selfish ambition unloving. So you basically are neutral, loving, and unloving every time you make a decision. So if you were to come to me and give me a smorgasbord of information, what I already know about you is you have been dealing with the people in your life, some past issues, or your parents, or some pressures, some pains, and problems. And you're going to come unload all of that on me. And as you unload all of that on me, you're going to tell me how you've been reacting to all of these things. And as you tell me how you've been reacting, I'm going to be able to categorize all your actions, responses, and decisions in three areas. You've had neutral, loving, or unloving responses. Let me describe what I mean by neutral. Neutral responses are those things in the Scripture that God doesn't command or prohibit in your emotion or reactions. In other words, embarrassment. God doesn't command you to be or not be embarrassed. He doesn't hold you as guilty or wrong for embarrassment. That's neutral. Disappointment. That's a neutral response. Okay? Make sense? Embarrassment. Disappointment. Um, what's another practical neutral response? Uh, elation or sense of joy. Those are neutral. In other words... If you are riding on a merry-go-round and it makes you laugh or you get excited, okay, you're not commanded nor are you prohibited. Those are neutral responses to life, disappointment, embarrassment, things of that nature. However, nothing stays in neutral. 
Did you catch that? Nothing stays in neutral. You're going to move from neutral to what two responses? Ding, 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 ding. When I'm dealing with people who've been raped or molested or abused and all those things, and let me clarify, my oldest daughter, we adopted her when she was 17 or 18. She had been raped and molested by her stepfather for nine years. And so we had to work her through a lot of things that I'm sharing with you. And as we work through some of what I'm sharing with you now, we recognize some of the things that happened to her that were horrific. We cried with her. We wept with her. We helped her work through these terrible things that happened to her. But she moved from neutral to responding in loving and unloving ways. And what was crippling her were not the loving ways she was responding. Guess what was crippling her? So we had to be delicate, but in reality, we had to teach her something about what happened to you was not your fault. This was terrible. We're going to weep with those that weep. But the ways you have chosen to handle and respond and deal with this do not match God's standards for obedience. But the ways you have handled it the way God intended, it's wonderful. And that's not why you are stuck where you're stuck. You're not stuck because someone did something to you. You're not stuck because of the ways you've handled it the right way. You're stuck because in these ways, in this little area right here, you keep handling it in ways that are inconsistent with the will and ways of God, and that's keeping you in bondage. Does everybody see the logic of what I've just said? Now, is that just true for people who've been raped? That's true for whom? Oh, see, God has no respect to persons. And the moment we understand that, we can help people no matter what the situation with the wisdom reality again. What's the wisdom reality? We all respond to those things, those six Ps out of three areas, neutral, loving, unloving. And our problems in life are not where we've been disappointed, embarrassed, or sad, not where we did the right thing. We're stuck where we've what? Chosen to do the over and over and over and over and over and over again. Now, someone who doesn't understand this, we don't start there. That's why we have to start back with what you can and can't control. We have to start back with the reality, again, of how God defines life. And without that or the reality of how we're called to live, if I don't give you that as a Christian, it's hard for you to hear what I'm trying to communicate to you about the situation you're in. We have to have that backdrop. And the more we have that backdrop, then we can begin to see here are some realities about life that you have to begin to embrace. And until you embrace these things, we can't help you in the process of change. Because you'll keep blaming the people, the past, the pressures, the pains and problems for your choices. And your choices are always driven by what's happening where? In your... And God has done something to fix that. It's you having to learn how to work that out in your life. That's what good biblical counseling and good discipleship is all about. But it starts with reality check. So if what I'm saying is true, you can look at your life and see where you have been neutral, loving, and unloving in a lot of situations. 
And when I'm training people in how to shepherd and how to counsel, I have them go out as a project and not try to fix anybody, but listen to people and categorize all their responses. I tell them, spend the next two weeks. I do kind of that wax on, wax off training in counseling. <laughs> Why am I doing this? Just trust me. Wax on, wax off. Just go out for the next two weeks. All I want you to do is listen to people and categorize all their reactions. Tell me when they talked about the people, the past, the pressures, the pains, and problems, because they're going to talk about it. You're going to hear it. Tell me how they responded. Give me the basic ways they responded. Tell me the neutral things. Tell me the unloving. Tell me 11 things. That's all I want you to do. I don't want you to do anything else. They do that for a couple of weeks, then I give them more stuff to do. And before you know it, before they sit down to counsel someone, they've got all this going on in their heads that they can see immediately and deal with practically from God's perspective. Does that make sense? I'm sharing with you in Life 101, if you recognize that all of your responses can be deduced to this reality, neutral, loving, unloving, nothing stays in neutral. So ultimately, we're dealing with your loving and unloving responses. We help you to understand this thing called the point of choice. And we're going to talk tonight, closing out tonight, really building on this point of choice. Because for you and I, every time we make a choice, we're either walking in God-centeredness or self-centeredness. But you just said they're neutral responses. But nothing what? So there's no need to really get into that in detail now, is it? Because technically, you're going to move from neutral to what? Sometimes or all the time? All the time. So technically, what should we be dealing with the most? Your, but we got to help you see it. See, we can't help you till you see it. Again, uh, be not conformed to this world, but you're transformed by the renewing of your trust and love with all your heart. Do not lean on your, that's what we're doing here. We're putting those scriptures to practice in reality, not just pontificating and talking about it. Does that make sense? This is how we help you see. This is how we learn to see. This is how we move into real change. And this is how we got others into real change. And if they're not patient enough to see this, there's not much you can do. Most people want relief. God wants transformation. Most people just want to feel better. God wants them to become better. And until their goal changes, they can't get from God what God wants to give them, which will bring relief along with the transformation. So with that in mind, the first slide, as we look at the point of choice, at the end of the day, consider this, a person only has two choices, to be self-centered or God-centered. This drives every other issue in life he or she encounters. The more we choose to be self-centered, the more we are held captive by our sin. The more we choose to be God-centered, we're freed from sin, but walk in slavery to God, resulting in God's glory and our greatest good. The condition of our lives is determined by the choices we have made in life. Genuine biblical counseling helps individuals understand this reality to pursue the choice of being God-centered. Now, we're not going to go through these scriptures in detail, but I want you to kind of get on the Bible bus with me. 
with the big picture, I want you to go back over the next few days and analyze and scrutinize these passages, okay? So we're going to start, and this is what I do with people. Single, married, divorced, it doesn't matter because it's all the same reality because you only have what? Three choices. What are three choices? Neutral. Is that only for married people? Is that only for divorced people? Is that only for single people? Ah, that's for what? So this always applies to whom? That's the importance of looking at it through this grid. So I'm going to do some things. We're going to be repetitive. I'm going to do it over and over again. And I'm going to keep building, okay? Every step, we're going to keep building. Step number one, we choose to be what? God-centered or Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 to verse 25 reveals that. Again, not going into details, but what are the two choices in that passage? To walk by the Spirit or walk by the... And we see the evidence in Galatians 5, 16 to 25 of walking by the Spirit or walking by the flesh. So you and I, at the end of the day, we only have two choices. We choose to be God-centered or self-centered. Now, let's build on that. When we are God-centered, we choose to live our lives for God, resulting in doing things according to whose standards? Is that divorce, single, married, doesn't matter? Amen. When we are self-centered, we choose to live our lives for ourselves, resulting in doing things according to what? Let us see. When we choose to live for ourselves instead of living for God, we will live in slavery to sin. Letter D, when we choose to live for God instead of living for ourselves, we'll be in slavery to God. Now, that is the principle. Let's look at the picture. So if we break down what I've just said, ultimately, we have two choices. At every point of choice, we're either moving towards God-centeredness or self-centeredness, and we're becoming a slave either way. It's important you catch that. Realize this in the latter days, difficult times will come because men will be what? You notice why God doesn't command you to love yourself? Okay? Because you already do. See, that scripture that says, love your neighbor as yourself, you're so full of yourself. If you could love people the way you love yourself, they would be blessed. That's the reality. Okay? That's what most people misunderstand about that passage. I don't have to teach you to think about you. You're always thinking about you. I don't have to teach. That's why I tell people, I can never love you as much as you love you. You're so full of yourself, I'll never get where you are with you. That's why we're so disappointed with people. You ever thought about that? We want them to be as full of us as we are of ourselves. And God has asked us to die to ourselves, take up the cross, and follow him. That's not complicated, is it? It's a reality check for all of us. God-centered, self-centered. So, what are my two choices in life? I'm either God-centered or what? Now, let's build on that premise. Here's the next slide. Our choices are driven by our thoughts. That's important. So, we have two choices in life. We're God-centered or what? Our choices are driven by our thoughts. Look at Romans chapter 8 with me for a moment. Romans 8 verse 5. Our choices are driven by thoughts our thoughts. So, again, we choose to be what again? I'm going to do this all night long. Choose to be what? And our choices are driven by what? In Romans chapter 8, verse 5, it says, for those who are according to the flesh set. Who determines what you think? Isn't that interesting? Set their minds on the things of the flesh, 
but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. We only have two choices in life. Whether God-centered or self-centered, our choices are driven by our thoughts. Now, let's break that down a little bit more. Letter A, when we are self-centered, our thoughts are dominated by two things, lies and selfish ambition. Therein lies the wisdom of the world that we see in James chapter 3 when it talks about earthly, demonic, natural. You remember that passage? When life is about you, it's all about you, and you're driven by lies and selfish ambition. As a result of those lies and selfish ambition, take a look at this and tell me if this does not fit you from time to time. Our thoughts tend to be driven and reduced to what we have been denied, what we believe we deserve, what we want, what we think we should have, or what we think we need. We become friendly with the world and unfriendly with God. None of you ever have that problem. That's your friends, right? Do you see the reality of where I'm going here? We have two choices, God-centered, self-centered. Our choices are driven by our thoughts. When you are full of you, all you think about is what you've been denied, what you believe you deserve, and you are consumed. I have seen husbands and wives where they're so processing the whole day what the other person did, and when they come home, you know what I've been thinking about? And they've had the whole day to process how the other person did or did not do what they thought they should have done because the world revolves around whom? Two choices in life, God-centered or self-centered, our choices are driven by our what? Letter C, when we are God-centered, our thoughts are dominated by what two things? Truth and wisdom. As a result of being dominated by truth and wisdom, our thoughts tend to be driven by what God commands of us and how to live according to that. We focus on things such as what God promises to do for us and when to expect it. We tend also to focus on what God is doing for us, has done for us, as well as what we can be doing for others and how to do it accordingly. Therein lies the principle. Let's look at the picture. So at the end of the day, at the point of choice, your choices are driven by what's going on in your mind. This is what I love to tell people, and they tell me, you can't read my mind. I don't have to. Your thoughts or your choices tell me what you're thinking. I don't have to be a mind reader. I can look at your decisions. And all your decisions reveal if you're driven out of selfish ambition or love, if you're God-centered or self-centered. It doesn't take rocket science to figure that out. I tell people I'm not that smart. The Bible is just that clear. I see you coming because I see your choices. And your choices are revealing how much you love so-and-so or don't love so-and-so. Your choices are revealing how much you love God or don't love God. Not your words. Your choices tell me all I need to know. That's why I tell men that are looking for leadership in my church, I'm going to see you more than I hear you. I live in a world of words as a professor. People are always talking to me about the latest theological issue and blah, 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 blah but then I see their lives. I'm never impressed with what people know. I can Google that and find out even more. I'm excited with how people live. That tells me who you are. Does that make sense? And so when I'm looking for leaders, I tell people, I'm, actually I tell them I'm not looking for leaders anymore. I'm looking for servants. I don't need any more leaders in my church. I need some servants. You catch what I just said? You see the distinction? 
All right, I'm going to leave that alone for now. But anyway, two choices in life. You're either God-centered or what? Our choices are driven by our what? Thoughts. Now, let's build on that with the third principle. Point number three, our thoughts are motivated by the flesh, sin in our hearts, or by the Holy Spirit. Now, let that sink in for a moment. Let's, let's, again, is this for single people or married people, divorced people, remarried? Who is this for? Oh, so if you are a Christian, I am talking to you because this is a reality for you. So let's build on this. We are God-centered or self-centered. Our choices are driven by our what? And our thoughts are either motivated by indwelling flesh or by the Spirit of God. Guess what I know about you when you make sinful choices? What motivated you? Guess what I know about you when you make God-centered choices? What motivated you? I'm not a prophet. The Bible is just that clear. That doesn't take rocket science. Show me your life. I'll show you what you're driven by. You're going to tell me about the people. You're going to tell me about the past. You're going to tell me about your parents. You're going to tell me about the pressures and the pains and problems. And you think that I'm going to go with you on that. But I'm going to help you see that that was a context in which your choices were made, which you're exposing just how God-centered or self-centered you've been over the last two months, three months, three years, 10 years, 15 years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is everybody follow the logic? So what are the two choices again? I'm just curious. What are they again? And, and, and our choices are driven by what again? And our thoughts are motivated by what? Now, I won't read Romans chapter 8, 1 through 14 for time, but the context of Romans 8, he's making a distinction between a believer and unbeliever. But we know that in this context, we see this also happening in Galatians 5 with believers. So what we realize is even though Romans 8 is talking about even being driven by the flesh or being driven by the spirit, and he's making the distinction between believer and unbeliever, we go over to Galatians 5, 16, and we know the reality is for the believer, the same thing is true, except that only unbelievers can't be driven by the spirit of God. It's all flesh-driven, which is the distinction he's making in Romans 8. But in Galatians 5, we realize that you and I, when we decide not to walk by God's spirit, we will walk by the flesh, and our choices will be evident to all. So I can literally say, to some extent, I know what you thought by the choice you made. Okay? But respectfully and within a limited scope, because I don't know your thoughts. Scripture is very clear. No one can know the heart of man except the spirit of man within him. But after you make the choice, what can I say about you? That choice was not driven by one motivated by the Spirit. That choice was driven by one motivated by the... Galatians says the deeds of the flesh are evident. Is that right? So the more I watch your life and spend time with you, you are showing me and exposing in practicality where you are. Letter A, when our thoughts are motivated by the flesh, sin in our hearts, we are preoccupied with issues such as hedonism, Preoccupation with whatever brings me pleasure apart from God. Autonomy, independence from authority, not having to answer to anyone, 
materialism, preoccupation with material things, and entitlement, believing I deserve whatever I want or pursue. This dominates our thinking. Letter B, this leads to further disobedience to God. We will see things such as anger, hatred, immorality, jealousy, abuse, cruelty, lying, selfish ambition, arrogance, rage, sarcasm, or selfishness. This leads to a guilty conscience, a fear of God's judgment, and a desire to escape God's judgment, resulting in trying to flee from the inevitable consequences of disobedience to God. Letter C, when our thoughts are motivated by the Holy Spirit, we tend to be preoccupied with the desire to know Jesus Christ, to become like Jesus Christ, to be useful to Jesus Christ, the return of Jesus Christ, and the blessings in this life and the life to come from Jesus Christ our Lord. This leads to further obedience to God. We'll see things such as humility, patience, peace, joy, self-sacrifice, kindness, goodness, mercy, love, faith, gentleness, self-control, and wisdom. This leads to a peaceful conscience, a confidence in the presence of God, and a desire to draw near to God, resulting in drawing near to God. That is the principle or the principles Let's see the picture. When I'm sitting with people in counseling or just in general trying to teach, try to help them see the fruit in your life is not the issue. The fruit is only there because of the root. And if we don't distinguish as Christians between the fruit issues in our lives and the root issues, we'll be chasing our tails. And this is why when people are talking to me about fruit, I'm already analyzing the root, because here's what I know. I know you want to talk about that issue, but if I can help you see the bigger picture, you'll begin to see that this issue and every other issue you think you want to bring to me will be settled if we deal with this specific area of your life. Because fruit is driven by root. So take a look at that fruit. And all of us, if we look from the left to the right to the fruit, in our lives, sometimes because we do belong to Jesus Christ, right? So we will see some good fruit, right? But there are some times where I tell people, if you catch me on a certain week, you might question my salvation, okay? Because I'm not looking anything like a Christian. There have been some weeks in the last few weeks where I said to say, Lord, I am so glad none of my parishioners, anybody can see me right now. And I need to adjust my attitude. I need to repent. I am out of order and I know it. Does that make sense? But when that's happening, I know something that's going on that I need to have a check on. And that is the fruit is not the issue. That's the symptom. What are my thoughts motivated by? Indwelling sin. What's going on? Autonomy, hedonism. What's happening in my soul? What is more important to me in that moment than being driven by the Spirit of God? Because whatever that is, it keeps coming out. And until I deal with that, I can try all day long not to be selfish because that's not the answer. Not to be selfish is not the answer. It's to be what? God-centered. It's to be what? Kind to others. It's to move in the other direction. But I have to be motivated to do that, and that's coming from me either surrendering to God's spirit, not my flesh. So when I'm sitting with people, I'll say, circle this week. Circle the fruit in your life. Where did that fruit come from? What does that reveal about your choices? What does that reveal about your thoughts? Who's been running your mind primarily? Has it been your flesh or the Spirit of God? 
And then when they start, but pastor, you don't understand about these people. You don't understand about my past. You don't understand about, and I go, "Mm mm-hmm, here's the yeah, but. You're making excuses where you could be making confessions and watching God do transformation. But you want to give me excuses, and God is waiting for confession. Because you have the power to change. Remember, there's one thing that God will not do for you. And what is that one thing? He will not obey for you. You have to do that. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Okay. Okay. Let's pray. I'm going to go home. Because I can't do anything with excuses. I can do a lot with confessions. I can do nothing with excuses. And I'm not mad at you. God has to do something. It's above my pay grade. But here's the problem for many of you. You keep trying to be the junior Holy Spirit in people's lives. (laughs) And somehow you believe God anointed you to do for them what they're not willing to do for themselves. You believe you're going to bring them to conviction. You believe you're going to change them. And and you have deemed yourself the one to make it happen. And you're up all night and they're at home sleep. (laughs) You ever thought about that? I've had to help a lot of junior Holy Spirits in my time. And I've had to tell them, look, there is not a fourth person to the Trinity or would not be called the Trinity. (laughs) And the moment you stop trying to play God in these people's lives, you will be free. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. All right. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Or as I say, holla. We'll see you. But when you're ready to accept that only God controls and you can't do for somebody something they're not willing to do for themselves, you're going to be miserable. I remember my mother, she was excited to have this lunch with me. I was having some struggles with my girls in their teenage years. And I gave my mother the blues, so she was loving this conversation. I was sitting there like, Mama, it's, Mama, it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard, huh? It's, I mean, they're doing this. Mm-hmm. I can imagine they are, huh? She said, Son, let me ask you a question. How do your children learn? I said, What? What do you mean? I said, she said, Son, listen, listen. Get out of your emotions. Listen to me. How do your children learn? I said, I don't know what you mean. Do they learn by listening or do they learn by experience? I said, well, they're not learning by experience. I mean, by listening. She said, so then recognize that it's not until it hurts them enough that they're going to change. And I know you want to save them because you love your babies. Those are your girls but you want more for them than they want for themselves. And because you want more for them than they want for themselves, you're trying to do for them something that only they can do for themselves. Just like I had to do with you. And I was waiting for her to bring that in there. (laughs) Bam! (laughs) But isn't that true for anybody? If I want more for you than you want for yourself, how can I help you? Because I'm trying to do the work that only you can do, and only you can obey God for you. I can't obey God for you. I can help you, but I can't 
make you, and I can't do it for you. And as I've discovered that over the years, as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, I sleep better. Because for years, I was like this. Because my job is a shepherd. I got to make these people. I got to help them understand why they're not getting this on me. It's my fault. I must be a terrible pastor. And God had to help me understand, will you stop trying to be me and be who I commanded you to be? And by the way, leave my wife alone and go home to your wife. You spend way too much time with my wife. Go home to your wife. Boy, that changed my world. That's why every year, the last four weeks of the year, December, I take off. It's just me and my wife. I leave the church in the hands of other leaders. Don't call me. Don't talk to me. Y'all got it. Love y'all, though, but I'm out. <laughs> and for four weeks, we fight, we fuss, we pray, we have a good time. All the fights we didn't have because we're too busy dealing with everybody else's life. <laughs> We have it in them four weeks. We make love and make up. I mean, it's wonderful. I get excited in December. Like, I'm going to have a good time. I'm not pastor. I'm not professor. I'm not counselor. I'm just Nick hanging with Vanessa, my wife. The moment I learned that, it freed me. Because whatever issues that were going on in your life before I left, if you weren't willing to do what God told you before I left, why are you calling me now in December while I'm gone? Pastor, I tried to call you, and I couldn't get your number. Mm-hmm, that's right. Because for four weeks, I need to do what I told you to do. It's not that I only do it in those four weeks, but the point I'm making is I had to learn to take some time to deal with my life and the doctrine according to 1 Timothy 4. Does that make sense? Watch your life and your doctrine. And I was watching too much of a doctrine, not enough of my life, and I had to make some adjustments. Coming back to these things, I'm sharing with you. Does that make sense, everybody? And it has freed me as a pastor. I love people, but I also will leave people where they are if they don't want to grow because I can't force them. And I don't mind church discipline. I hate doing church discipline, but when church discipline has to happen, it has to happen. Does that make sense, guys? And I'm the last one to want to do it. I will wait and wait and wait because it's a last resort. But when it comes to the point where a person's unwilling and it's affecting the rest of the body of Christ, they have the power to obey. They're unwilling to obey. It's not that they're not getting the wisdom or the skill or the support. They don't want it. You leave me no other choice because I have no power to change you. I have no power to fix you. We have resources to serve you, to help you grow. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And what I lack, there are other men or women that I know around the country. We can fly in if necessary to give you what you need. This problem can be handled to the glory of God if you want to do something about it. But if you want to keep making excuses instead of making confessions, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. Let's take a commercial break. Look at these three principles for about two or three minutes. When we come back, we're going to build on this with the last two key principles and then talk about solutions. Take about two or three minutes. So what? 
How does this apply to me? So what? How does this apply to me? Take about two or three minutes. Hey. Twenty minutes. Perfect. Did you know? You didn't mention it, but on, on your chart here, uh, decision making, the God-centered Psalm 119, the whole chapter is all about decision making. Did you get that from that? I didn't, but that's good to know. <laughs> I just used that particular verse, but. On what set again? A lamp into my feet. That's what those study books call. Yeah, I did. Um, I do the one with um, Walk of Repentance. That's my favorite. So when someone's actually repented and wants to come back to the church, they have to spend 22 weeks in that with somebody, and then after that, we do an evaluation and then we welcome them back. But if they don't finish that, you know. Okay, everybody. Let's go back in and let's see if we can um, 
build on our foundation a little bit more. So how are we doing? Making sense so far? Now, I just want to see uh, the hands. How many of you, this is the first time you've heard something like this. I'm just curious. Okay. Okay. Some of you have heard this before. That's good. Now, how many of you are putting this to practice if you've heard it before? <laughs> it's like, wait a minute now. You went too far. See, and again, this is what I teach people all the time in counseling, even my baby counselors. I said, never be intimidated by sitting down with anybody who knows more than you, who's older than you, or has had life more than you. I said, don't let that intimidate you. Let me tell you why. The equalizer is application. All you have to do is let someone pontificate on how much they know and then ask a simple question. How much of this have you applied in the last few days, and can you give me examples? See, that puts everybody at the same level. Don't matter how old you are, how much knowledge you've had, how much Bible you have. Son, I'm older than your shoes. Okay, all of that's good. But tell me how you put that to practice in a few days and give me examples. Knowledge is nothing without application. See, the world says knowledge is power. That's not true. Application of knowledge is power. Knowledge alone makes you arrogant. And what the Bible says, knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. The goal of our instruction is what? Love. Not the goal of our instruction is to pontificate more insights on the new theological issue that we need to discuss. You know, those who are covenantal versus those who are premillennial dispensations like myself was right. But anyway... <laughs> I'm going to leave that alone. But the point I'm making is that's cute. But if you're not living out this stuff, it is just a waste of your time. Make sense? All right. So let's start from the beginning. What are the two choices in life? You see why I have to do this? You see how quick I gave you a two-minute break? See, now I'm going to start fussing. I'm going to get real black in here. I'm going to start fussing. All right? What are two choices in life? Our choices are driven by what? And our thoughts are motivated by what? Amen. All right. I won't fuss now. All right. Number four, let's build on this principle. This is where many of you have not considered. When our thoughts are driven by the flesh, i.e., sin in our hearts, we will begin to worship our desires, turning them into the lust of our lives. Now, we're going to talk about that more tomorrow, but let me just kind of help you understand what we're saying here. When you look at James chapter 1, verse 13 to verse 14, Scripture says, Let not the one who's tempted say he's being tempted by God, for God does not tempt anyone, but each man is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Now, the word lust there means evil desire. And the idea of an evil desire is anything that you want so bad, you're willing to sin to get it and sin when you don't get it. Okay? Most people, when they think of lust, they just think of sex. But the Bible has a more uh, broader perspective of the word lust. You make crazy decisions because of lust. Not sex, but the desires you make so much of what you want, you're willing to sin to get it, to sin when you don't get it. My father, as I shared the story with you last year, he was a professional car artist. 
and he robbed people out of house and home. He was a drug addict, drug dealer, and he knew how to manipulate people. And he taught me this lesson I'll never forget. He said, the only reason anybody can be conned is because they're needy or greedy. He says, you can never con a content person. And he was a professional con artist. He said, anybody that was content, my game didn't work because I couldn't sell them anything because they were okay with what they had and where they were. He says, but anybody that was needy or greedy, I took them for everything. He says, so son, I know I'm never around you, but you need to learn that lesson. Don't ever be needy or greedy or you will be taken. Because it's not that carn artists are that smart, we're just that selfish. That's what a lustful desire is. You want it so bad, you're willing to sin to get it and sin when you don't get it. And watch this. It's not that you didn't study your Bible. It's not that you didn't go to Sunday school. It's not that you want in worship. But that thing trumps everything in your life. You could be praising God one minute, and then when blank shows up, you will make the decision. Why? Not because you don't know better, but because you want what you want when you want it. That's what a lustful desire is. Does everybody understand that? And Scripture tells us that we are easily manipulated by that. And here's what I tell people all the time. I remember a young lady came in my office. She said, Pastor, I know the sexual sin I committed was wrong. I said, well, honey, why did you do it? He told me he loved me, and I can't believe that he left me. I said, oh, let's talk about this. He told you he loved you. I said, so then what desire in your life became a demand which turned into a lust, which led you to make a decision you knew was wrong? She said, the desire to be loved. I said, it was no longer a desire to be loved. It was a worship of being loved. And because you worship being loved more than you worship God, you were willing to let him have your body, which was not his to have. I said, please hear me well. I said, you know I have two daughters your age. She said, yes, sir. I said, and I'd share with them. They didn't hear me either, and now they've repented since that time because I have two grandchildren or four grandchildren because I had two daughters that chose not to listen. They've come to Christ since then, and they have started to live a life to please to the Lord. But let me tell you, that was a struggle. It was a struggle. And I would tell them all the time, listen, I wasn't always a preacher, but there's one simple rule about anybody. Whatever a man will do with you, he will do to you. If a man is willing to tell a lie with you, why are you shocked that he's not lying to you? If a man is willing to be deceptive with you, why are you shocked that he's now deceiving you? I've been trying to tell you this all your life as my daughters. But you kept going for the cute, kind, and cuddly and not the Christ-like. But they hear me now. Does that, does that make sense, everybody? But your lustful desires, the things you want so bad, is not that anybody is that smart. You're just that selfish. And when it happens to you, you can't blame those people. No, you wanted what you wanted, and you got manipulated. Not because they were powerful, but because you were selfish. That's what a lustful desire is. And what we have failed to understand in this room, and we're going to talk about it more tomorrow in detail, but there are some things that we want more than we love God and love other people. And because we want those things, we keep getting caught up in a lot of stuff that's unnecessary. But we didn't pay attention to it. Many of you now, if you look at the relationships you've had over the years, it was driven not by love, but by lust. And I'm not talking sexual. I'm talking that desire for whatever you wanted. That's why you love so-and-so and God with so-and-so. 
That's why you end up marrying so-and-so and divorcing so-and-so. That's why many of you decided just to be single because you can't get so-and-so or such-and-such from so-and-so. You've wanted blank so much that you've reduced relationships as a means to an end. And that end was not Jesus Christ. That was what you wanted. Think about that with me for a moment. One of the most powerful things in your life that you've missed or the desires in your life that you haven't paid attention to that drive you. And again, it's not that you didn't study your Bible. It's not that you didn't go to small group. It's not that you didn't go to school. It's not that you didn't have your devotion time. You did all those things. But what's speaking loudly in your heart and in your life that you hadn't paid attention to is you want blank. Let's fill that in. Letter A, our minds will be set on things below instead of things above leading us to make self-interest a priority over God's will. We focus less and less on loving God and loving others, and we focus more and more on using God and using others according to our self-interest. Letter B, our desires will become preoccupations resulting in us looking for avenues to satisfy these desires we have started to worship. We look to any person, place, product, or perspective we believe will satisfy these desires we have started to worship above loving God and loving others. Let us see, we will build our lives around these desires we've started to worship above loving God and loving others. And then letter D, we'll become servants of our flesh to satisfy these desires we've started to worship above loving God and loving others. Look at the picture. What many of you fail to understand is your problem is right there in front of you on that page. You thought it was the people, you thought it was the past. You thought it was your parents. You thought it was the pressures. You thought it was the pain and problems. That's not it. Your desire for any one of those things up there have become so strong, they've become demands. And when you think about the person you're upset with right now, the person you're holding hostage in your mind right now, they didn't give you blank, whatever blank is up there. The person you're no longer with right now either stopped giving you blank or never could give you enough of blank so you had to move away from them. The people you fight the most right now are tied to blank. And you can fill in blank. And because you're willing to sin to get blank and sin when you don't get blank, there's always problems in the relationship unless blank is given to you. And whenever you have a problem with them, it's because they didn't give you enough of or they refused to, and it always comes back to blank. And you can fill in the blank. You know what's weird? The more anyone knows that about you, they got you. Not because they're stronger than you. Not because they're smarter than you. Not because they're better than you. But because you're that selfish. And the more you want blank, and you keep thinking that's more important than anything else, I can manipulate you any way I want to. I can get you to do anything I want you to do. And this is what's sad. As my father taught me that, I started to see things in churches that scared me. I started to see the manipulation behind a lot of preaching and teaching. Let me give an example. I sense in my spirit in this room right now, God is speaking to me. Somebody in this room is struggling financially. 
I sense in my spirit right now someone in this room is struggling with a relationship. I sense in my room, this room right now, someone is having some medical problems. Come now, come now, come quickly if I've just spoken to you. Well, that's almost everybody in the room. <laughs> the Bible says they have no temptation taking you but such as is. Of course somebody in this room is having a relational problem, physical problem, financial problem. <laughs> Duh! But if you're that caught up, you'll believe that I'm talking to you and that God has used me to say something to you. And for $39.99, if you buy this book, <laughs> my father may not have been a good man, but that principle changed my life. Does that make sense, guys? Because at the end of the day, whatever you want more than you want God and Loving others, it has you. Look at this list. See, you would come to me for counseling, and you would start with all the externals. Can you tell me the six externals you're going to start with? And you're going to go for hours, because in your mind, that's why you're having the problems you have. And I'm going to listen to you for hours. And then when the time is right, I'm going to help you through what we're doing right now and show you what you want from the, what are those six things? What you want from that is what's driving you. And you want it so bad, you're willing to sin to get it and sin when you don't get it. But you've never made that connection. I got to help you make that connection. See, I know your parents may not have treated you the way you want, but your worship of approval and respect is so powerful that you moved it to your marriage and every other relationship. I know that People didn't treat you right, and you wanted to be loved and accepted, but your worship of being loved and accepted is so powerful, you've moved that to other relationships, and you've hooked up and disconnected from people, not because of what God says, but because they didn't give you enough or they lacked in blank giving you because you wanted it so bad. And because blank is so powerful, it drives most of your decisions. But you don't know that about you. But people who study the Bible deeply, like the devil, he knows that about you. Does that make sense? Let's take a look at the next principle. You see how I got deep real quickly? See, that's the trick of this. This is how sneaky it is. It starts with you only have two choices, God-centered, self-centered. Your choices are driven by your thoughts. Your thoughts are motivated either by the Holy Spirit or by the flesh. But if you are driven more by the flesh, you'll start to worship your desires. And that's where the problem is. You want to be loved by your husband more than you're willing to respect your husband. You want to be respected by your wife more than you want to be loved by your wife. And then you bought into the manipulation of that book that talks about love and respect. I need love. I need respect. No, you don't. You need transformation. 
Love is a byproduct of sanctification. Respect is a byproduct of sanctification. The more you die to yourselves and live according to God's will, you will love and you will respect, not because the other person needs it, but it's a byproduct of your character. People are suffering because of your disobedience. People are benefiting because of your obedience. And that comes from your character, which brings glory to God. The more you work on your character, the more blessed other people will be. The more you think you have a need that's not a need that the world says is a need, by the way, which is manipulation, who doesn't want to be loved and respected? It's manipulation. I want to be loved and respected, but God didn't call me to be loved and respected. He called me to love and respect by the Holy Spirit and to be set apart and embrace his love as he transforms me. And guess what? The more I do what I'm designed to do, the more you do what you're designed to do, who loses in the relationship? But we're not motivated out of our own ambition. We're motivated out of what? Pleasing. Oh. I thought he saved us to know him, to become like him, to be what? So the more I walk in knowing him, becoming like him, being useful to him, Who's blessed? The less I walk in knowing him, becoming like him, and to be useful to him, who's burdened? But I think it's the people, the past, pressures, pains, problems. The psychological babble we've been trained to believe that's inconsistent with the reality that God has presided through his wisdom. Two choices, God-centered, Point number five, as we make choices according to the desires we have begun to worship, we will find ourselves on a path of difficulty and hard times. What does it look like? We will become slaves to that which we pursue above loving God and loving others. Letter B, we will develop sinful habits that are hard to repent of and replace as a result of pursuing these desires, we worship above loving God and loving others. Letter C, we will reap negative consequences of our sinful habits in pursuit of those desires we worship above loving God and loving others. And then letter D, we will have a negative effect on the lives of those around us as a result of pursuing those desires we worship above loving God and loving others. Do you know that your real problem in relationships is not the problem it's how you're handling your salvation. See, the more you recognize that you were saved to please God, how will you handle people? According to his will and good pleasure. But the more you handle your salvation living to please yourself, how will you handle people? According to your what? Your flesh. That's not complicated, is it? Take a look at the picture. We see the point. Again, back to those things. You're going to have to decide. We're going to talk about this tomorrow as we get deeper into this. How much of this are you a slave to? See, when James chapter 4 says, what's the source and quarrels of com conflicts that come amongst you? And I'm not going to talk deeply about that because that's what we're going to do on Sunday morning when we talk about resolving conflict. We're going to come back to these things. And you're going to see the reason you keep fighting and fussing and cussing and whatever it is, it's because you want what you want more than you want to love God and love others. 
whatever that is, that's at the core of the conflict. What's the solution? Point number six. We must turn from a self-centered life to a God-centered life through the power, person, and precepts of Jesus Christ. You and I right now, by the authority of God, have the ability to do this. That's why I don't have to talk about ability. I have to talk about willingness. See, the moment you said with me, yes, I've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and we can do a theological treatise on that in Ephesians chapter 1. Yes, in Philippians, it is God that's at work in me so I can work out. The moment you told me that, you had no more excuses. True or false? So this isn't a question of can you change. It's do you lack knowledge, do you lack skill, or do you lack will? Because you have what God wants for you to do what he's designed for you to do. Letter A, we must identify the areas of our lives where we're dominated by lies, selfish ambition, hedonism, autonomy, materialism, entitlement, and lustful pursuits above loving God and loving others. We must identify where this is happening in our attitudes, intentions, desires, words, actions, relationship patterns, and service to God, and confess and repent accordingly. It's a powerful thing. The Bible says in Proverbs 28, 13, he who covers his sins will not what? But then he gives the answer. But he who confesses, conjunction, junction, what's your function? You remember that hooking up word? Oh, okay, I digress. He who confesses and forsakes. It's not just confessing. It's turning away from to turn to. That person will find compassion. We must decide, let it be, to make God a priority in all that we think, say, and do. Let us see the areas of our lives where we are dominated by lies, selfish ambition, hedonism, autonomy, materialism, entitlement, and lustful pursuits must be replaced with specific obedience to God in those areas. If we sin specifically, we need to obey specifically. Any critic can tell you your problem. People who love you provide solutions in the specifics, not in the generics. Does that make sense? And too often what we do in the Christian life is we talk about sin specifically, but we don't talk about obedience specifically, and we leave people hanging. And they know the problem, but they haven't had the proper solution. Any fool can tell you the problem. A wise person gives you solutions. One of the things I've learned over the years to kind of silence my critics is to agree with them and then ask for solutions. You know what happens? They have none. I said, I find it fascinating. You spent all this time critiquing me and criticizing me, but you didn't come with a solution for the problems. That didn't sound like you love me. Sounds like you're trying to hurt me. But if you love me, you would have came not with just what I did wrong, but ways that I can walk in what's right. And I'm agreeing with you. Now what do we do? You'd be surprised at how you shut people down when you just say, yeah, you're right. Now what do we do about it? Had a couple do that. 
You know you're such and such. Well, that's not true. You're so and so. I said, wait, 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 wait. Hold on. You're right. She is that stubborn, and you are that selfish. You're right about each other. Now what do we do? You got my attention. I agree with both of you, but I told you both of that before you got married, didn't I? <laughs> so now what do we do? And they look at me. I said, oh, so you... You came and your whole goal for this counseling session was to convince me how selfish and how stubborn. You got it. Now what? I said, do you see the problem? Nobody's loving each other in here. You came to prove something that you didn't have to prove. The key is how will you walk in love now? Let her see. The areas of our lives where we're dominated by lies. I'm sorry, I read that. Letter D. In other words, we must guard our hearts from self-centeredness by walking in genuine love for God and love for others and our attitudes, intentions, desires, words, actions, relationship patterns, and service. Let me show you this in practicality. The next page kind of gives you an idea of this, the next two pages, and then we'll close out here. So this is kind of getting into the nitty-gritty of the so what. So if you look at point number one, it's you look at your situation, and you understand you have to have the ambition to want to please God. My goal in life is to please God. I please God by being like Christ. God knows I will not be perfect, but he does expect me to be growing. So when you look at the fruit in your life, you look at the situation. Number one, review what's going on. Number two, start to look at the fruit in your life. What are the self-centered feelings, words, behavior, relational patterns in the situation? As you see that, go down to the surface, number three. What are the thoughts driving this? Number four, what are the motives driving this? Number five, what are the desires? See, if you really want to change, as you start to look at your life and do this, this is the fruit that's happening. This fruit is driven by these thoughts, these motives, these desires. And what do you do? You take it to the cross. Recognize Repent. And what? And that's where you get into number six. What are the new thoughts I need to have? Number seven, what are the new motives I need to have? Number eight, what are the new desires I need to have? And the more you start to walk in that, what's going to happen to your life? Look at the last chart. It gets a little bit more specific. Number one, what is happening? When, where, with whom, what do you want that you're not getting? What are you getting you do not want? Are you God-centered or self-centered? Number two gets into more specifics. And as you do that, number three, four, five, six, and seven all stay the same. But this is just a way to help you to begin to get into the nitty-gritty of what it means to change. And notice when you're doing this, you're not looking at the people, the past, the pressures, the pains, and problems of making excuses. You're looking at your heart. So as we close, walk within the very last chart. Psychology will take those left things called shaping influences. Psychology will tell you the reason you do what you do is because of the shaping influences. And that's why you have your feelings and actions and reactions. That's not true. Shaping influences are influences, not determiners. But the reason you do what you do is the shaping influence along with your heart. You got me? If your heart is oriented towards self and you have these shaping influences, you're going to have worldly belief systems and desires, and your feelings and actions are going to follow. 
our job. You're going to tell me about the people, the past, the pressures, the pains, those are shaping influences. We're going to take all of that and help you with truth, help you move into a heart oriented towards God. Because those things happen, those things you experience, but they're not defining you. You're reacting to them out of where your heart is. We're going to expose you, help you to see that, build a heart towards God, which will then lead to godly belief systems and desires and the feelings and actions that follow. But in order to get where we got, as I close here, what do we have to understand about our life? Who do we belong to? We've been delivered from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, soon the presence of sin. God changed our position from sinner to saint, our condition from being dead to being alive, so that we may know him, so that we may become like him, so that we may be useful to him. All of this is built on that premise. If you don't accept that premise, I can't give you this wisdom. Because this wisdom is based on you seeing and then wanting to adjust according to that. If you reject that premise, then what are you going to tell me and blame? The... And, and the words of an old rapper, I can't do nothing for you, man. Nothing. As we close, we can make excuses or we can make confessions. The more we make confessions, we're going to see transformation. The more we make excuses, we'll always do what we've always done and always get what we've always got. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this night. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in this part of the world. I thank you for the privilege of being able to come and talk to them. I pray, Lord God, that you will use me as a vessel to bring glory to you, to bless my brothers and sisters in this side of the world, that they could see what you're saying and no longer make excuses or play the blame game, but begin to own up where they've messed up so they can move on by your power. Be different. Do different so they can experience your blessings in their life and these relationships they have, recognizing that the more they operate by your character, the more blessing they are and will receive from others. But the more they operate in the flesh, the more of a burden they will be. Have your way, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.